Welcome to the Haunted Hacker podcast number, I don't know, Pascal, give us a number between 200 and 300. 267. 267, cool. So uh, tonight we have Pascal Ackerman, uh, a friend, author, and uh, cybersecurity guru. Um, and uh, let's start out with a little bit of news. I just got back from Oklahoma City speaking at Innotech. And uh, look for a course to be launched uh, the first part of next year. Um, TechStrong TV decides, decided they want to um, do workshops. So I'm really excited about that. I got to meet the whole team in, in Oklahoma City and do a live interview. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, great people. Uh, other than that, I speak for ICE um, in January. And I'm doing FinCon on Monday. So it's a pretty packed schedule um, for the first part of December. So with that, I will uh, introduce Pascal and have him give, him, give us a little bit of his uh, background and, and his little bit of his journey, and then we'll launch right in. And we may be interrupted a little bit by this little dude, Loki, who decides he wants to pop in camera every once in a while. So Pascal, why don't you uh, give us a skinny on who you are and, and what you do? Yeah. <clears throat> So Pascal Ackerman, I was I was originally born and raised in in Holland. That's uh, that's in Europe for you for you guys who don't know where to find it. Yes, it is close to Amsterdam. I started off my career in automation and control systems. Uh, always been on the cutting edge of things. So whenever they had jobs uh, with uh, new technology, with with cutting edge stuff, I'd be the guy to go over there. And I was commissioning engineer. They would send me to the weirdest countries to install the weirdest machines that to make it happen. Oftentimes, somebody else would have tried it already and failed. You know, a project would have been miserably uh, behind. And then they tried to send me over and, and get it fixed. Uh, most of the time, I'd, I'd succeed, but I had a couple of failures as well, as well of course. But uh, always cutting edge. Uh, the, as the projects got bigger and bigger, we started to use uh, Ethernet uh, to connect the PLCs, HMIs. Uh, together. The, do, do we need to go into detail what PLCs and HMIs are? They're, they're the building blocks for automation. So <clears throat> cup of coffee you drink, uh, the, the gas you get out of out of the, the gas station to, to put in your car, there's a really good chance that a PLC and an HMI were involved in making that stuff. Uh, we started connecting more and more of those systems together, and I got more and more interested in the way it, it worked, right? Started playing with packet capturing, started playing with hubs and uh, and how in how, how broadcast happy they were and, and to see all of that stuff and started starting to evolve more and more towards building uh, the, the network that supports the industrial control systems more than actually the control systems till eventually i i made the plunge into a, a job that combined uh network uh networking of automation systems with cybersecurity, which was a, a little side hobby that I picked up along the way. Where I, I don't think you can spell network building without uh, thinking about security, at least you shouldn't. So uh, I joined Rockwell in their uh, commercial engineering team. So basically they have a lab out in, uh, in Cleveland where they set up uh, reference architectures. So they, they build a whole bunch of switches, they put them in rings or in stars, or they use rep rings, they use their DLR, DLR <coughs> proprietary protocols, and then they test out how well all that stuff works. And I, I, I came on board as their more of their cybersecurity uh, uh, specialist. So 
did, did that for a while, did some write-ups uh, along those lines. And then I actually got really fed up with just writing about it. I wanted to implement it. So I joined, I joined their NSS team, mostly because it was just a really cool name. Hey, I work for NSS. And they'd be like, oh, uh, what does it stand for? Uh, it's Network and Security Services. So it was a letdown <laughs> once, you, once you explained that. But I did get to go out and, and meet some of the, the largest companies in the world. And I helped them uh, build uh, uh, secure architectures from, from the ground up back in the day. And actually still to this day, most companies have a flat network where they have their, their business systems, their, uh, their automation systems, and anything in between them is sitting on a flat VLAN and everybody can communicate uh, together with all the inherent uh, security risk of that. So I help, I help companies uh, segment, uh, put the proper controls in and make sure that they have at least a fighting chance when something happens uh, to, their, to their environment. Been, been doing that uh, for Rockwell uh, for four years. Then I joined, uh, then I decided to, to take the plunge into a company that's a little bit more foregoing, which was Stratgen. They were uh, cutting edge with, with several technologies. Uh, I, I helped them build their services team uh, for two years. And then a, a new job opportunity came along. Uh, I, can't, I can't disclose right now who that is, but if you look me up on LinkedIn, it's not too hard to find out. And that's, that's where I am now. Uh, I'm a manager of consulting in OT security. I think that's the title they gave me at this moment. So you're the, the head cheese of the whole consulting team. No, 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 no. So the, the, yeah. way, the way it works there, a, ma- a manager position doesn't mean that you're a people manager. It just means uh. that you're a certain level. So they have, they have staff, they have uh, senior consultants, then they have manager level consultants. That just means that I have a couple of seniors that I take to a project with me. And then they, the next step would be a senior manager where you have a couple of managers you take to a, to a team with you. Very, but it's very still cool. hands-on. Yeah, and you, uh, you also wrote a book. Um, I reviewed that book. Uh, you did? Uh, I did. I read the book and, and got to give my review to the publishing company. Um, and uh, you kind of spurred me along to, to write a book. And the same company is actually going to publish it. Um, so why don't you tell us about, about the book you wrote? So we, we got to go back to the early days with my uh, uh, with Rockwell when I joined the NSS team. One of the first things, uh, one of the first projects I'd had got me out to, to Mexico. And I remember sitting at, uh, at the pool doing hard work, of course, when, uh, when I got a ping for, on LinkedIn from Peck Publishing. And they were looking for somebody to write a book on industrial cybersecurity. So that, that was the first edition or what I like, call, like to call the first volume of the book. <clears throat> Uh, basically, in, in the first book, I, I uh, wrote up on how to do proper uh, architecture, just and, and, and uh, how to implement your security program from a policy perspective and all that. Uh, apparently, people liked that book because uh, we had more and more requests for a, for a second edition or a second volume, like I like to call it. And so I wrote a, a second book that that only slightly touches on the first one, just just enough to to explain the, the concept and the basics to understand the, the rest of the book. And uh, the second edition is, a, is mainly geared towards monitoring and verifying of your uh, cybersecurity posture. Yeah, I thought it was uh, really interesting. And, you know, the, the publishing company is pretty interesting as well. Um, the type of books that they, they publish and the way that they go about it. 
I've had some some really good interaction with them. I think it's really cool. But the the whole idea of writing a book, I think, is is a huge undertaking. Just getting to the point where I actually put pen on paper. Um, that to me took me a long time. Did, did you did you kind of toss the idea around, or was it something you jumped right into? And it's everything I do in life is I jump first, and then I, I try to maneuver my way on the way down. So as soon as as soon as they came, I felt I felt really really honored when they came and said, "Hey, we want you to write a book for us." So I said yes before I even thought about it, and then I started writing. And and I, I'll I'll be honest, there's there's been probably forty percent of the time I just hated it because it, it's a big commitment. And you'll find out too. You have to do it. You have you have these deadlines, and there's a little bit of play in there, right? You, if you push hard enough, they'll back off, but you still want to finish the book at a reasonable time. But it takes it takes uh, evenings, it takes weekends away from your family, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's it's a big commitment. But uh, I I did it. I did it twice. Uh, I I'm not sure if I'm gonna do it again. <laughs> yeah, just the uh, just the outline itself, I think, is uh, pretty arduous. Like defining what what the framework's going to look like and then filling in the, the blanks, I think is going to be even harder. So OT is something really interesting to me. Um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people on the show who've been from different backgrounds. Um, Clint was on here as well, you know, your counterpart. Uh, yep. And I have to say that some of the most interesting conversations I've had revolve around OT. Um, one of one of the uh, previous guests, uh, Max Hennemeyer from Dart Trace, we talked a lot about AI and, and OT and, and industrial systems um, and artificial intelligence. And I think it's it's very prevalent where we're at right now because if you look at the ransomware attacks and, and some of the new targets for for some of these groups, they're not really new, but they're hitting them harder and more frequently are those OT systems and networks. Um, especially, you know, the, the grid, the infrastructure. Um, one that we have not seen like blow up yet or, or like highly targeted is the power grids. You know, we have five power grids in the U.S. and one being in Texas um, and the rest spread, you know, spread out through the U.S. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that, that we see the low level stuff like, you know, in, in Florida with the water treatment facility and, and stuff like that and the colonial pipeline. Why don't you think that they advertise or, or it hits the media, the attempts at the infrastructures? Uh, so first of all, I, I think these companies are probably already infiltrated. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're just waiting for that perfect moment. That it, There's probably some nation state sponsored entity that has that red button that says, okay, we're going to, we're going to do it and we're going to do it now. We're going to do it. We've seen it in, in the Ukraine, I believe it was, yeah. in 2013 or something, where, they, where they did this test. And, yep, they, they, took, they took part of the grid down. I think somebody has a button like that. And we've seen implants that, that basically mimic a, a module, an, an automation module. It's indistinguishable from a, from a regular module, but the code in there can be, can be triggered remotely to do whatever the, the adversary uh, uh, wants to do. Yeah, I, I think th- I think it's in there, mm-hmm. I, and I think I think if something does happen on there, I I think it doesn't make the public news as much. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe somebody's trying to uh, put put the lid on it and, and try to make it less hush hush. Yeah, my my theory is that because it's infrastructure and because it's such a, a very sensitive uh, spot as far as the power grid, 
I think at that point it becomes a, a matter of national security. And we all know what happens when the government determines something is national security. They, they push it under the rug and, and shut it down so people don't uh, get freaked out or panicked. Um, but I'm starting to see a lot more, I guess, disclosure from the government. We were talking in, in Oklahoma City with TechStrong about um, what we needed to go forward in order to secure cybersecurity and, and make a, a more safer internet. And one of, it, one of the uh, suggestions I made was the government needs to be more translucent with information pertaining to our industry. You know, they tend to bottleneck information and they don't share information like they should. You know, we're talking about the power grid and how, you know, we don't hear a lot about it. Um, but I think that I, I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where the U.S. government says, okay, we had an attempt on the national power grid unless there's a plan behind it, right? Um, with Putin, you know, stacking troops by Ukraine, uh, and then going to the UN and saying, hey, look, you know, don't send anybody to Ukraine, because if you do, we're going to have problems. I think we're, we're on that precipice where cybersecurity has come to a head. Ransomware is, is all over the place. And we all know nation states are involved in that. Um, and then we look at the supply chain and how it's so backed up and, and how there's security issues and holes in the, in the supply chain. So they really have us where they want us, right? Um, our supply chain is, is damaged. Our infrastructure is obviously damaged and weak. And right now, I feel like we kind of let them have power. And that, that red button you're talking about with the infrastructure, I think it does exist. You know, I know that the, there's been nation states in the power grid, you know, working in the electric industry and the power industry for a while. Um, I know that they've been in the grid in California, uh, setting up shop and, and kind of laying dormant. And I think it's it's you're, I think you're right. I think it's waiting for that one defining moment where they take the power that they've gained and draw the line in the sand. And when we cross that line, then they hit that button and throw us back to the Stone Ages. Yep. Uh, because if they if they hit the power grid, we lose internet, we lose water, we lose electricity. Forget the supply chain because nobody's going anywhere. You know, you can't operate pumps without electricity. Um, yeah, control everything. Yeah. So I, that, that's my theory. I, I think we're, you know, with the pandemic and you know, the economy and supply chain, I think our country is in a weakened state and it's just a matter of time before they pull the trigger on something like that. I, I also think that we have one of those buttons too. I, oh yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure we have one of them as too. So uh, in, a, in a way we're back in, in, the, in the late eighties, right? Mm -hmm. the, the cold war situation where we had uh, what do you call it? Mutual uh, destruction, mutual guaranteed destruction. Is that is that the phrase what you use? Mm -hmm. I think we're in that situation. Maybe that's why we haven't seen that somebody push the button yet. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Um, not only that, but you know, we we had the Cold War when it came to nuclear armament, right? And now I think we have another Cold War brewing, and, and we're well into it. And that's the Cold War of grabbing that that cyber espionage, I guess, armament. And taking that control, as well as, uh, you know, the new space race, going back to the moon and, and trying to get, you know, space exploration going. I think that we're running into another Cold War in that area, uh, because I think that, you know, in the future, when, when we start pushing that frontier, the Internet's going to be part of it. I mean, Elon Musk is already throwing satellites up there to try to get his Internet around the world, which I think is awesome. Um, but again, you know, you have satellites, you have things like that, that 
you know, control communications, that control internet, that control a lot of things, GPS navigation for maritime. And to me, that seems like it's going to be the next theater or, or, or I guess, battlefield for the internet, right? So right now we're fighting ransomware on a terrestrial internet plane. Um, but once that, once we start pushing towards space and, and competing for that, that upper hand, I think that those satellites are going to become huge targets in the future. I can see, I can see a combination of the two, right? I don't know if, I don't know if those satellites work two ways, if they, if they could be accessed from the moon, but if you, if you got your adversaries on uh, sitting on the moon and I believe the Chinese are up there right now, but if you have them sitting up there, there's, there's no uh, international law that that will prevent them from doing anything they want to communications going through the, to those satellites. Yeah. And I, I think it's amazing just looking at satellite communication. Um, you know, the fact that we can arc communications to a satellite and back down to the earth and provide internet service to people in remote areas. I mean, that, that's phenomenal. Um, I lived it's in a place. I li- yeah, it's huge. I lived in a place in, in Alabama where I couldn't get a damn signal to save my life. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would have bought one of those satellites had I had the money, you know, it's people and, and in the U S the lack of internet determines the poverty line. That's true. And I, th- I think a lot of us are, are, are or have been below that line because internet coverage in the U.S. is very spotty, just like cell phone service. Yep, I, and so the, which which begs the the question is that once that's all set up and done, you can live anywhere. Because myself too, I, I got to live in an area where I have a somewhat decent internet connection to do do my job. But if once you can use the satellite, and it's I believe he's aiming for like a hundred megabit up and down, mm-hmm. perfect. Yeah, uh, you can live anywhere. You can live off the grid. Yet all you need is the cell connection and maybe a couple of solar panels, mm-hmm. and you can you can live anywhere. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty amazing. I know a lot of people are looking at. Um, I guess they call it van life or uh, living in RVs and vans, like modding out vans and RVs and stuff. Uh, I know my roommate in Alabama was looking at that, and uh, you know it's not a bad idea. You know because a lot of us are, are anchored down. We're at the, the mercy of, you know, the utilities and the infrastructure. What happens if that infrastructure fails? You know, what's the backup plan? And a lot of people don't have that backup plan. Mm-hmm. And I think that's after the pandemic, everybody's like looking at, well, you know, if this gets any worse, we, we have to have a plan B. And, you know, with, with IoT and, and especially with, you know, infrastructure, we don't have a backup plan. You know, the, a, lot of, a lot of the infrastructure is so legacy and so outdated. Um, the only thing that's current and, and pushing technology are the PLCs and, and some of the uh, some of the control mechanisms. But the actual network, like if you look at the power grids, a lot of those systems that run distribution run off fucking NT. You know, what's our backup plan? <laughs> well, you can't even fix it because because they have to be up twenty four seven. So there's no there's no easy fix to getting rid of the NT. So. Yeah. The good news is I, I haven't heard of any viruses or ransomware that still target NT, so maybe we're secure again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that's the case. I think that, <laughs> you know, if you do a sample of the internet traffic now, like you'll still see like SQL Slammer and, and stuff like that. Um, but I've been getting into a lot of RF lately. Um, I actually got the, the Hack RF uh, module and uh, messing with GSM and stuff like that. But there's a lot of RF that goes into OT and infrastructure. 
Um, and that is really fascinating to me. Have you delved off into that type of technology? I, I, bought, I bought one of those HEC-RF modules as well, but I haven't had really had a chance to, to dig into it yet. Yeah, it's pretty been, amazing. Been too busy writing books. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, so, so I was looking at the HEC-RF um, really for the past 24 hours, like diving into it. Uh, there's a couple really interesting operating systems out there that people have compiled. One of them is called SIGINT OS. And the other one, um, let me see if I can remember what that one is. Oh, Dragon OS. Yeah. I, and, I, posted, I posted an article and I, I looked into that again a couple of weeks ago and it's, it has evolved a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I hooked the Hack RF into it and was looking at different GSM bands. And the amount of technical knowledge it takes to actually sniff GSM and cell phone on Dragon OS is scary. I mean, I could probably hand it to a teenager and they could probably intercept phone calls all day long. Yep. But I, I would I would suggest anybody who's listening or, or even yourself, um, Dragon OS or SIGINT OS. Uh, SIGINT OS is pretty impressive as well. Um, but I think that we're going to see a lot more uh, exploits coming out for RF. Uh, I think MZ Catcher and stuff like that is just the, the top level. I think we're going to see a lot more. It's good because it, it's a, it's an under uh, uh, underdeveloped uh, area, mm-hmm. right? It, it's just too easy to use it. And, and think about it. There's so many people using uh, their their cell phones at DSM and, and their kind of signals as a uh, two-factor authentication. Yeah. If, if you can easily, if you can be close enough or, or if you can pick up that signal and intercept that, that two-factor authentication code, then you're basically in. Yeah, so, so I was doing a... Um... Uh, talk and demonstration in Oklahoma City. And I did it over hacking Android. And I showed them how you can gain control of the phone and get access to the SMS call log or the SMS logs and the call logs and how you can send SMSs from the victim's phone remotely. And the question came up, well, if you can do that, can you get two-factor authentication? I said, well, you have complete control of the phone. (laughs) So, and it it literally takes you, I mean, if if you know how to use MS Venom and, and some other tools. I mean, you could build the payload in less than five minutes and deployment super easy. So you're using an APK? Yeah. A package? APK. Yeah. To do that. Yeah. I, I used MS Venom uh, to create the package, but then I used some tools to obfuscate and encode. Uh, that way I can get past, you know, control measures and, and AV. And I also use like a jar signer to make it look legit uh, so it can pass through um, the Google Play Store. Uh, and I did it live. It was pretty nerve wracking. So I had everything set up. I had the laptop, phones, Wi-Fi router, everything set up. I'm up on the stage, introducing myself. And I have a Sprite in my hand and I uh, start opening a Sprite and I'm, I'm talking. <laughs> the shit explodes all over me, like literally in front of the, this whole packed room. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, like I, a lot of people didn't think about that. And some of the questions that were asked, it was like, you know, I, I don't know that people really pay much attention to the security of their, their cell phones and their mobile devices. There's, there's this episode in, in uh, Mr. Robot. I, I assume you've seen that whole show as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this one episode where she's basically telling one of the guys to, to go to her, her, one of her websites with his phone. And as mm-hmm. soon as he does, she says, I got you now. And it's, yeah. it, is, it is still that easy. 
yeah. it is still that easy was because most people have a, a phone from Verizon or whatever the, the companies and they have a maximum of two years of updates and then and then it, it disappears mm. most phones out there are just absolutely outdated uh, yeah well and look at the prices they charge right so you're, you're gonna pay a thousand dollars for a new phone people yeah. hold on to their phones as long as they can unless they can afford the new versions popping out all the time. Um, so it's nothing to, to come up onto an Android that's super outdated because people can't afford the thousand dollar, you know, payments for those phones. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of security that we overlook. Um, and I think a lot of that resides within RF and GSM cell phones, um, personal devices. And what I try to explain to people too, is that, those devices are also used a lot more than your work laptop. Um, take, for instance, your phone. You know, I know a lot of people who's, who do work email on their phone, personal email, sensitive stuff as far as photos and SMS messages, stuff that you wouldn't want floating on the internet. But ask people how often they update their phones. Yeah, I, yeah I, I'm a firm believer that if, if you get a hold of somebody's phone, you get a hold of their life because oh, the yeah. factor authentication, the bank accounts, the contacts, you can get into anything from there. Yeah. And that's been also, my, mm-hmm, go, oh, ahead. Go, go ahead. No, you go for it. Um, that's, that's been my focus for, I guess the past month was really uh, cell phones and GSM and, and Android and iOS. You found a way to use GSM to get a root uh, presence on a phone yet? I haven't yet, but with HackRF, I mean, really, you don't have to. So with HackRF, you get access to the voice and the SMS. So if you if you launch HackRF and you're scanning the bands and you find a band that's populated, you can literally pull all the SMS messages from the air. So if there's any two-factor authentication, I already see the details of that phone and also get the SMS. But with that phone number... I can also just go back and say, hey, look, you know, I've got this game or whatever and send them the APK through MMS. You know? yeah. And now I have their voice and control their phone. You, you pick up the ISN through, uh, through the HackRF as well? You can. Um, I've looked at that and I've seen, I've seen some examples of it. I haven't really dove off into that portion of it yet. Um, to me, the protocols and the bands themselves are really interesting. That's what I've been trying to focus on. Um, the, the actual GSM bands in the U.S. and other countries, it's kind of a mixed, mixed, uh, I guess, mixed bucket of bands. Um, and I really haven't figured out why they do that um, other than FCC regulations and, you know, European and international regulations as far as uh, uh, radio frequency goes. Um, but that, to me, is really interesting. Maybe it's easier than that. Maybe it's just competition. Because yeah. for the longest time, you can use you can use each other's uh, cell net. I think I think regulations have now dictated that uh, Verizon needs to open up their their towers to other companies because they were getting a monopoly or something. Yeah. But uh, for the longest time, I, there might be still legacy uh, legacy uh, uh, overall in that from from those days. Yeah, we we had a discussion um, during the talk in Oklahoma City about how. I guess, uh, proliferated the cell phones are across the world. Like everybody has a cell phone. Um, 10 year old kids have cell phones, you know, and you're putting these devices that have enough power to take a shuttle to the moon 
and you're put in the hands of people who know nothing about technology. So to me, that threat landscape is even bigger and more richer than networks of, of companies, right? Because who actually sits down and reads a manual for their cell phone? You know, they turn it on and plug the SIM in and they go. Um, and then you take grandparents, you take kids, teenagers, they're wanting to download games. They don't care if it's riddled with malware. They don't know. Uh, and know. yeah. And so I, I want, mean, I want the latest game. I'm going to, I'm going to disable only get it from the, the app store because otherwise I can't get the game. Yeah, exactly. And that's, so I did a, a proof of concept where when cyberpunk 2077 was coming out, um, I did a kind of a proof of concept where I said they were going to have an Android tablet version of the game and people went nuts. I think I had 2000 people that were ready to download the actual APK. Um, and can you imagine the amount of shells <laughs> you would get? I mean, immediately people were just like, Oh, I want it. I want it. Where can I get it? Um, so yeah, I mean, things like that are going to fuel, you know, the vulnerabilities. So what do you, what do you do in your, in your spare time? What are your passions outside of, of cybersecurity and, and OT? Living, living in Montana, it's the outdoors. I, I try to, oh, yeah. I try to get outside as much as possible, do some hiking, do some, uh, skiing in the winters and stuff like that but honestly i, I don't do enough of it I, I end up either doing some uh light reading hacking hacking manuals and stuff and i play i play a lot with hardware hacking i've been i've been really focused on uh, uh the jtag buzz and, and attacks of of in, internal uh memory of devices so i, I can't get enough of that uh, but yeah that that fills up my days that's pretty awesome too. i actually lived out in montana for a while uh, i was working in yellowstone during the summers and spent a lot of time really? in, in Bozeman and Big Sky, um, fly fishing and, and riding bulls. Um, I did that in Cody, Wyoming for a while. But it's, <laughs> it's a beautiful country, man. That's, that's awesome. I didn't know that you lived in Montana. Yep. Yeah, I, I love it here. Uh, like I said, but the, the windows, the windows in my office here, they look over what they call the, the sleeping giants. So it's, oh, it's nice. a rock formation. And if you look at it, it's like a giant sleeping there. It's just, it's just gorgeous. And, Gives you a little bit, a little bit of peace of mind, and especially when you've done these jobs in the big cities. And I, yeah. I don't like, I don't like the big cities. But you come back and it just it makes me peaceful. Yeah, I, I have it kind of good here in Chattanooga, where it's not a big city, but it still has a big city feel. Um, and I live in the center of downtown, so you know I've got the mountains on one side and downtown on the other. I mean, it's, it's peaceful. Um, but I think that you need that. Oh yeah, totally, totally. Um, between traveling and working and, and speaking, it really takes a lot out of you. And when you sit back and you think about it, the stuff that we do to give back to the industry um, really mounts up. Uh, you're writing books, you know, doing the podcast. Um, you know, there's so much that, to be done, and so many people are interested and want to be sponges of that information. So how do you divide your time? Like, so I know you have a full-time job. I know you write books. Um, what else do you do in cybersecurity besides those? I'm, I'm sure you speak. Just, I, the, yeah. The, the podcasts, the, uh, the occasional uh, speaking engagement, uh, the, the reading, right. The, I have CISSP. So I got to make sure that I, I keep my CPEs up to date on all that stuff. So it's, it's hard, man. It, it, sometimes the, the family comes second place, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but it, that sometimes happens, and I try not to do it, but sometimes you have to, to, to keep up with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really demanding uh, environment. I was speaking to some students last night from North Texas, 
Um, a friend of mine, Julio, that I worked at um, Superior Viper Labs with, uh, he had called me and said, hey, you know, I got some students that, that want to talk to you. Um, they're making their cross into cybersecurity from other places, and they want to know what it's like. Um, so got to talk to them, and I, I tried to explain to them that there's a lot that goes into this. It's not something that you just jump in and you're an expert, and it's not something that you get to a certain point and you know everything. Um, because to me, the hardest part, and, and it really drives me crazy, is when I, when I get really interested in something and I master it, something new will come out. And I'll be like, damn, now I got to learn that too. You know, like I get excited about it. I get engrossed in it. And by the time I master it, then something else comes along. A new exploit yeah. comes along. Um, so how do you keep I, up with that? Do you have a lab and, and stuff like that? I, I do. I, I have a pretty extensive lab. I've been, I've been buying eBay stuff for the last six or seven years, right? Because you can find good deals on like old, UCS servers, Dell servers, workstations. I've been building. I got I got quite an extensive and then PLCs and HMIs, either from uh, uh, from old customers that say, hey, or take take that with you, or from eBay as well. But you you do that, you start you start playing with that. But I'm I'm kind of lucky. So just in, in comparison, the OT field is pretty stagnant. But because even the book that I wrote five years ago, my first edition, it is selling better now. And it doesn't say much, but it's it's selling better now than when it first came out because people are finally catching up. The, the, the material in that book is now finally becoming relevant. People are finally thinking, oh, I, I should start thinking about architecture because if, if I was segmenting my network, maybe maybe that ransomware would make it all the way into the, the systems and, and shut me down. So that's just the, the comparison. But uh, yeah, apart from that, a, a lot of reading. Every morning I get up or... And, and I read the news and I read articles and anything spikes my interest. I, I forward it to, uh, 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 to my uh, lab computer and I start playing with it. Uh, like the, what is it? The hot potato, no, the, the, the petit tamo, the, yeah, yeah. the new uh, LTN, uh, LM, uh, I can't speak, NTLM uh, vulnerabilities, stuff like that. But also like uh, uh, PLCs a while back, uh, I, I believe it was a Siemens PLC or maybe a Modicon that came out and they said it had a backdoor in one of the firmers. I'll go out and, and pull the firmware and actually see for myself what, the, what it's all about. Just so you stay up to date with it. Yeah, I think the last uh, PLC vulnerability that, that I was like diving into is a tracking X controllers. Um, they had a pretty, pretty lethal vulnerability in those. And I guess DHS came out and announced it after they'd fixed it. Um, but I, I, I quit reading, I guess, tech books uh, for a period of time, and I, I'm still taking a break from them. Um, dove off into uh, my favorite Stephen King and, and some of the some of the stuff that takes me away from from reality for a while. That's uh, probably because, smart. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at, at some of the stuff we do, so I've done I think like eleven or twelve instant responses over the past sixty days, which I mean, you and I both know are like twenty four hour a day jobs. You know, go from that and then my regular job and then speaking. Sometimes I just need that break to like pull away and, and release my mind of, of all that noise. I'll use, I'll use a really good movie or a series for it. I, I can get absorbed. The latest one was uh, uh, a Netflix, uh, uh, Lost in Space. You've, you've seen that? I, yeah, I, I just devoured those. I think season three just came out. So I'm, I'm about to, to be a couch potato. Uh, for a, for a while there, I just I sucked that stuff up. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm anxious to see what happens with. Uh, so I've been doing some stuff for Listen Night and Night Inc. Media, and uh, I wrote a, a screenplay for one of the short films for a cybersecurity company. So they have an idea of, of doing these marketing things where they're not just doing commercials. They're actually doing like short films for, for clients. And I put together the screenplay and it was finally finalized. And they got actors. They did an act, uh, a casting call and they're going to start filming. So it, it's going to be neat to see like what I wrote down actually come to life. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, those, those types of things, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff to do in cybersecurity that doesn't have, doesn't have to be necessarily technical. And some of the questions I got last night from the students were, was just that, you know, I don't have a whole lot of technical experience. What can I do in cybersecurity? I try to explain to them, man, we need all kinds of people. We need tech writers. We need people who can organize and manage and all those things. Not everybody is heavy in tech, um, which brings me to my next question. So what did you do when you first got into cybersecurity? What was your job? So I was controls engineer for a, uh, a food and beverage company in Seattle. And I, I was basically in a dead-end job. And I, I, I stayed with them way too long. I should have left them. <laughs> uh, that's a whole different discussion. I'm not going to go there. But anyway, so at, at some point, uh, they, called, they called me up and they said, okay, all of our plans are down because they had a, a worm that went through the, uh, through the system. I, I know the executable, executable was called u.exe. And it propagated over the, uh, the, the Norton antivirus uh, distribution mechanism. It, it turned out later on that it was actually a disgruntled employee who wrote the virus and, and released it. So anyway, but I, they brought us in and uh, they had 13 plans. All 13 were, were down. And I, I went around and helped them remediate. I did AR, uh, IR before you even know it was called IR. And I helped them out. And it was just basically 48 hours straight fighting this thing and, and probably longer than than it needed because we just didn't know what we were doing right but it was such a it was such a, a glamorous feeling to, to be there and to sit there and i was one of the only guys who had ever worked with snort so they wanted me to set up snort to catch this thing and uh, it was just and then we messed around messed around and thought we had most of it and then it came back and they're like you know what we're going to bring in these these consultants so these guys came in they had the big giant aces laptops they went in they did snmp they used solar winds the sweeps uh, to all that stuff and i was just like haha when i grow up i want to be just like you and and they gave they gave me some recommendations uh, to get certain certificate certifications and, and tools and to get started and I've, 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 I've started studying and i've never stopped since so so, so with Snort and, and those types of things, I'm guessing you probably got into the industry somewhere around 2004, 2005-ish? Yeah, it was, yeah, probably 2005, 2006, yep. Yeah. Cool. Very, very interesting. I've always, because this happened about two weeks after the new C, uh, uh, CTO, Chief Technology, yeah, the, the new CTO came in. I've always wondered if he's got it just to, to see how well the team reacted. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of stuff does happen for <laughs> sure. Um, we just went through uh, something similar uh, where I work and we had a red team do a pen test on the internal company, but we didn't tell the, the analysts or the blue team that, that it was happening. And it was really interesting to see how fast they reacted. Um, the red team was, they said, oh, you know, we've been doing this for a couple of days and it just now caught it. I said, yeah, but, but it's a win. Because if you look at the average time it takes for a company to realize they've been breached, it's like 290 days. 
you know, and the analyst caught it in two days. I think that's pretty good. Um, but, but, you know, just like you say, it's high, it's high pace. It's fast pace. Um, I remember the days of snort. And I think back then we were at such a, such a cutting edge when it came to defense. Like we were making huge strides when it came to platforms. Um, but you look at stuff now and you're like, yeah, we've come a little bit further, but nothing like that initial jump back in the early 2000s, late 90s. There's just too many hands in the pot at the moment. Even, even in, in uh, while well, you've seen it on the IT side explode, you get all of these systems, you get all of these vendors trying to sell you the next super duper next generation monitoring system. And that, that has dribbled down to the OT space as well. And I, I keep telling these people, you're not ready for that because most companies don't have the architecture to support it. And they have, they have bigger fish to, to fry, right? Bigger fish to catch. Start with your architecture. Make sure that your architecture can actually be implemented. Your architecture is right for uh, implementing these, these tools, right? If, if you buy an, an IDS and you have no way of feeding it packet captures, then the IDS is just basically some dumb tool sitting somewhere. And on the other side, let's say you do have a good feed of packet captures and you get an IDS on there and this thing starts spitting out uh, alerts, but you have nobody who, who can go out and, and do something, then what, what good are these things, right? To put, your, put your money where it's worth. And I think all these companies just need to slow the hell down. Yeah, we got, I, we got enough to keep us busy for a while. Oh, for sure. Just with ransomware. Um, so I was looking at some of the technology that I've seen in some of the instant responses uh, and not technology that, that is used to clean or do forensics or defend, but too often. Um, and one of them is really interesting. So Cobalt Strike, uh, every time that I do an IR, um, chances are I'm going to run into a Cobalt Strike beacon yeah. that they planted. Uh, and that goes way, so if you think about it, that goes way back, right? So Mudge actually came up with this idea for Cobalt Strike. It was his idea. And I mean, I remember hearing from way back in the day. Um, you look at some of the guys who, who worked at Snort, and back then Snort was very cutting edge. Uh, you know, we didn't have stuff like that. There were Snort rules and signatures that you could write and implement on your own. Um, but if you look at the overall picture, yeah, we've introduced a little bit of machine learning, no true AI. Um, we haven't made the strides that I thought we would make in 20 years. And if we keep going at the same pace, the internet's going to be a mess because we have to, we have to find a way to invigorate and pump steroids into the cybersecurity machine. Because if we don't, we're going to fall way behind. So yeah, what, what do you think is that silver bullet? What, what, what technology do you think we need to? Because I, I see I see a lot of potential in machine learning and AI if implemented correctly, and even on the OT side. We had a discussion yesterday with Bill Peterson on that. I think I think if if for example the, the guys over in Florida with the water treatment uh, breach from what was it last year, yeah. if if some AI or ML whatever you want to apply on that would have sat there and said, okay, this set point that, that they cranked up to a million has been running at a thousand maybe somebody went up thousand and a hundred eleven hundred maybe nine hundred but all of a sudden it's a million if you had something automatic in there that that right that they would pick that up that's that's the way i can see this being implemented uh, uh properly yeah I, I i agree um and i think that once we get a handle on what ai is or what it should be that's gonna be a game changer as well I'm just but sorry, I uh, there we go. pop up. 
Yeah. yeah, but I do think that, you know, Kim just put in the, the chat, I, I yeah. do agree with what she said about education and treating employees right. So that's one thing that, that I pound the drum on quite a bit. And we covered that in uh, Oklahoma City with uh, my live interview is the fact that employee retention um, and tribal knowledge gets passed down that way. We, we train these people to be these subject matter experts and, and these Uber architects and engineers, but a lot of places don't give them the salary or don't give them, you know, the recognition or, or, you know, treat them like people instead of employees and end up losing them. And that information, that knowledge goes on to another company. Um, and I still have not found that, that silver bullet on exactly the right combination of, the environment and, and what needs to be done. But I do think diversity is, is probably the key. Um, not, and I'm not talking just male and female, I'm talking about backgrounds and from different countries and different principles, different industries. Uh, I think there's room for everybody in cybersecurity. I just don't know as an industry, if we're ever gonna get to that point where we have that equilibrium. Um, because if you look at some of the jobs that are open right now and the requirements, they're absolutely fucking insane. And I always yeah, we, we talked we talked about it on the OT Expose, right? It's a, yeah. come on, give me a break. And I <laughs> I thought about it a lot since since we had that that thing. And I'm gonna bring this back to to my dad. My dad was a plumber, and and he was a really good plumber. And he would and he really loved what he did. But but the way he approached or the way the industry approached it at that time is that you start an, uh, an apprenticeship, right? You mm -hmm. you go and you study with with a senior person within a company. They they support you. They they bring you up. They teach you everything you know, and you get you get a sort of a bond with it because he stayed with the same company for I think it was forty years. But wow. he went all the way from being a, a know it all to knowing it all. Yeah, and I and, think that's and, I think that's key. That. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it was probably the eighties, maybe even the seventies, when we started seeing people not work in the same company for fifty years. Um, people were no longer getting Rolexes from their companies because they were getting what they needed and moving on to the next company, you know? And I, I think that, that that type of loss in cybersecurity is what keeps us vulnerable. Um, I think that companies really need to, to work on retention because if you can retain that knowledge, that makes your network and your, your infrastructure that much more strong and powerful. Um, but yeah, I just... Looking at, at today and looking at the economy and pandemic and the world economy and, and the things that are going wrong, um, people don't care about people anymore. I think it's more about greed and survival. Um, and you see that in politics, you see it in healthcare, you see it in everything. And I just, I don't know what it's going to take to, you know, get to a point where that, that tide is turned and, and that equilibrium, you know, kind of levels out and we can all get back to where we were. Um, but yeah, so if somebody was getting cybersecurity and they wanted to do OT security or they wanted to do industrial security, what would your suggestion be as far as what to do? I get that question a lot. So it, honestly, if, if you could start with a career in like, just like automation or even engineering manager, engineer, engineer in a, in a factory where you have that day-to-day -day interaction with these systems where you start to understand that yeah i cannot just shut this this boiler down because the whole plant is going to suffer the whole plant is going to die or in a pipeline I, I cannot just stop this one uh section of the pipeline because then everything is going to stop you need to get that 
you need to get that feel for the urgency, for the uh, for the involvement, for for the whole concept of that before you you should dive into uh, cyber into the security part of it. But that that would be the most uh, uh, the, the pro tip, and it's also the hardest thing to do, right? Because getting that kind of exposure is hard on, unless you've you've had a career in that it's, it's hard to get into it and to a, to a degree just to get to the, the the good part of it just to get to the security part of it i i agree um i was working at bank of america and chris sistrunk i don't know if you know chris or not uh, but he and i met at um, idaho national labs working on um a SCADA, uh i guess competition or or red team blue team type competition and what I found was my experience that I had working in the power industry as a meter reader, as a lineman, learning how the power, the power grid worked and, and what pieces went into it um, gave me that inside knowledge. But I, I think that doing stuff like that helped me actually working in the field, working in that industry, whether it be oil and gas, whether it be electric or what healthcare, whatever, it gives you an inside knowledge of the operations and criticality of things, right? And so then when you want to make your switch to cybersecurity, you already have experience in that field. You already know what you're facing. And I think that makes it more of a powerful transition and probably a, a fast track. Um, but I don't think there's a lot of people that actually do that. They, they look at cybersecurity and they may be in, let's say, teaching or, or healthcare. And they say, I want to do cybersecurity. But instead of looking at the industry that they're currently in, and learning how they could secure that industry or that environment, they automatically want to go to network. They want to go to AI or something like that. Um, and I think that, you know, when people ask me, what should I do? Um, I've started telling them, look around you, you know, in your current job, if you're a student, look at your school. Um, I just didn't answer response on a college because the network is super flat. Look at those environments that you're currently in, the industries you're in, and look at the systems that you use that are interconnected and think about security and, and start learning about it and try to implement it in your own industry. You don't have to jump ship and be strictly IT security or network security. Look at the industry you're in. And I think that that would make things a lot more powerful as well. And, and honestly, if you look deep enough, even in even in a university, you'll find industrial, you'll find control systems. Because, HVAC. Because HVAC, there you go. You, you're, you're building you're building automation uh, systems, which are often tied to the same network as all your students are on. So, oh yeah, uh, for sure. Just like just like in that movie, the uh, the first hackers movie, where the, <laughs> the, he turns the sprinkler system on, right? That there you go. It's because it's on the network. We can get to it. Yeah, during the IR, um, you know, we were talking to the school and, and they were struggling. And it was it was pretty bad. They got hit pretty hard. Um, but what that's I found, a, that's another, that's, go no, go ahead. No, go for it. I thought um, you were done. What, what I found is that, that traditionally school networks are open because free flow of information and knowledge, right? But their networks are so flat, man. It's so dangerous. And I think that college is now seeing, you know, hey, we got to do something here because this can't go on. Hmm. Two, two things on colleges. I think. If you want to get into cybersecurity, being a, a systems uh, system engine, not damn system uh, system manager, systems. All right, I can't come up with the name right now. But being in control of a, of a, a, a university network, right? Being the, mm -hmm. the, either the network uh, manager, the, the network support uh, dude, 
mm-hmm. or or somehow being involved with that is a fantastic way to get into cybersecurity. You'll see it all. You will see anything that can go wrong and, and can be done on a network is going to be done in, on a college uh, network. So that's that's one. Second is that I've been seeing more and more colleges implement really, really good uh, OT cybersecurity practices and, and labs. And I've, I've actually been thinking, and, and maybe you're going to say do or don't, but I've been thinking to maybe uh, offer my services to some of the universities and just say, go out and say, hey, if you guys want, want some uh, advice, if you want me to help you out build uh, more of these labs, reach out to me. Because I, I, think, I think that's the future, getting people interested in this stuff early. And, and you see those classes are filling up as well more and more. So people are interested in doing this kind of stuff. So if you can't get the job experience from the job after you get out of college, at least you can get it on, in college. Yeah, I think that anybody who has a decent amount of experience and history in cybersecurity needs to take that knowledge and give it to college students and give it to colleges um, and other institutions because you don't gain it unless you pass it back. And where I started my, my speaking career and, and started doing a lot of my, I guess, volunteer work was academia. You know, I spoke at all the universities in the UK. And the thing is, is that to me, I, I don't charge people like that. I don't charge academia and I don't charge law enforcement. I don't charge academia because academia has given so much to me. I, there's no way I could charge them for this knowledge because those kids need that. Um, law enforcement, I don't charge just strictly because I don't want to go to jail. Um, but <laughs> totally different story. They'll anyway, pull you over and be like, oh, I know you. Hey, keep going. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but I, think, I, I think you're right. I think if, if you have that knowledge on, on OT and, and you know, and, and people, are, the universities are building those labs, offer to help, you know, because nobody else is going to, you know, nope. because it, it's, they're not going to pay you. And to me, giving that back is worth more than a paycheck. To me. That's why I do so much of, of free stuff for people because, you know, they appreciate that shit, you know, and it goes a lot further than let's say a pen test, you know, it, people will remember that shit like five years down the road. Oh, I remember this one time when so-and-so came to college and, and said this or did this that's what really makes a difference yeah and 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 it gives us a chance to to, to set the course in the right direction at, at the very early stage of it right because we yeah. can we can argue all we want oh that's because because people don't teach uh, don't get taught properly they, they school is not it's not up to snuff here's our chance to do something about it yeah exactly and and i hear people griping about that all the time like students saying oh you know i don't really learn you know, what I need to learn, what I want to learn. Well, you know, reach out to somebody and I'm sure they'll give their time and, and come out and do a seminar or, or do a talk. Um, I, you know, I do, I love giving talks for universities because I get a lot of student interaction and a lot of good questions. I mean, and, and they give you a fresh perspective on what we've been doing for 20 something years. Sure. Uh, and usually someone will ask a question and it'll, it'll really get me thinking. I'm like, damn, I've re- I haven't thought about that, but that's what we need is that, that type of interaction. See, I, I don't like, I don't like the giving the talks and getting in, in front of a, a crowd. I do like the training sessions where you just, you, you present a, a subject, you get them started and they do the labs and you walk around and you help them get through these stuff. Right. Because that's when you, that's when you see what they struggle with, you know, it, it's mostly like implementing stuff and you know, where to, where to improve your own uh, skills at, right? And like you said, yeah. one would be like, why did you do it like this? What do you mean? Why did you do it like this? Like, Damn, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I've been and, doing this for 10 years. Yeah. Where were you 10 years ago? 
and that's another thing I tell the tell the uh, college students too is always be open to learn something, you know, and learn something from the most strangest places because I've had people that have been in security a year and pose a question. And I'm like, damn, maybe I need to rethink the way I've been doing that, you know. And it, I, but I think it takes everybody to make things better. It's not just a, a Chris Roberts or Ralph Eshmandia or you know me or you. It takes everybody to to contribute to make things different. Um, so question, a personal question, favorite Uh-oh. drink, favorite drink. Mm-hmm. Well, right now it's probably water. Water. Remember what I said back in the dead end job. Yeah. yeah at, some, at some point that dead end job got me into trouble with, uh, the harder <laughs> stuff. So I, I gave, I gave up drinking probably six years ago now. Nice. Nice. Um, right now, my favorite is peanut butter cup bourbon. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not strong. I've been, I, I see you. I, how do you do that? That glass never empties. Is there, is somebody filling it up for you? No. So, so I, I don't drink it, drink it. I sip it, you know, like I, I like to enjoy things and take things slow. Um, which is funny because, so one of my favorite drinks of all time is PG tips tea from Europe. And I looked forever trying to find PG tips and the tea here in the U S like really sucks. Um, so I actually ordered some PG tips online and I got my shipment of like six huge boxes of PG, PG tips. And I'll tell you what, like to have that good tea here in the U S makes my day so much better. Um, Mm. but I, I try to import some of the things that, that I like from different places. Unfortunately, my time in Volendam and Amsterdam, I can't import that stuff. But, you know, hey, can't, <laughs> no, can't that, get cheese, every... that cheese spoils. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, the and then it gets, gets stinky at customs, right? And then they have to pull it apart. So let me, tell you story, let me tell you a story about that. So I was going, I was in Amsterdam. I had just gotten there. Um, I'd spent a year there, but I had just gotten to Amsterdam. And some people wanted to go camping. Uh, I met some, a couple of girls from France and a guy from Germany and they wanted to go camping. So we packed our bags and went from Amsterdam across the ferry to the North and decided to go camping. Well, one of the girls had brie cheese in her bag. And by the time we got to the campsite, nobody could sit in the tent. Like we had to hang that shit in the tree somewhere. It was horrible, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I loved Holland. Um, the cheese markets on the weekends, I think it was like Sundays, they'd roll in these huge like tombstone looking blocks of cheese yeah. and people, people would bid on it. And dude, it was so awesome, man. Um, and then the tulip fields, I, I really miss Holland. I wish I could go back, uh, but that's a, that's a beautiful country. Um, what was your, what was your favorite coffee shop there? Was it Bulldog? No, no, no. Everybody knows Bulldog. Yeah. I didn't like Bulldog. I was- and I, I didn't like <laughs> I didn't like the grasshopper either. I, I went to a place called Siberia, um, and it was locally owned. Um, and what what I found was a lot of the coffee shops in Amsterdam um, were owned by Americans. And I'm like, what? Why? You know, I didn't come here to to go to an American coffee shop and do that at home, sort of. Um, sort of. Yeah. If you like coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Green coffee. <laughs> uh, so I, I went to uh, I did go to the Bulldog Cafe was not impressed i went to siberia and then there was another place that was really close to the Anne frank house and it was called area 51 and they had a so you had the coffee shop on the on the lobby level on the ground floor 
but in the basement, they had the cannabis college. You could actually go down and they taught huh. you how, how they grow and they gave you a tour and everything. It was really cool. Um, and I'm glad to see in the U S since I've been back that they're making progress to, to legalize that. Uh, because, you know, everybody is more concerned about, Oh, well, you know, it has such a stigma on it, but they don't see the benefits, right? They don't see the kids, the, the children who are having, you know, 20, 20 seizures a day and their parents give yeah. them a little bit of cannabis oil, THC oil, and they go seizure free. Um, there's so many health benefits to that. And I really wish that people would get rid of that stigma and realize that there is a lot of benefit in that plant. Um, I know that doesn't very have true. anything. I, I know that doesn't have anything to do with cybersecurity, but but I'm <laughs> very I'm very passionate. Ex, actually, it does because I've I've done cybersecurity, OT cybersecurity for green fields. Uh, oh, nice. uh, a, a few times where you go out and, and you set up it makes mostly architecture, right? Getting getting all of their control systems security on a network. I, I see a possibility of a company there, though. I mean, if you can automate you irrigation, automate irrigation systems, and the huge grow farms that are popping up all over the Western U.S., there could be this, some this, this was a place in Canada, and it, it was huge. It was a couple of football fields mm-hmm. filled with uh, potentially filled with with plant because it was a green field. They hadn't started production yet, but yeah. I, it's big business, man. And once it becomes big business and big pharmacy is behind it, mm-hmm. that's where we're going to see the change. Because until then, they rather give you give your kids uh, Adderall than they give you something that's that's herbally. They'd rather give something that you have to have another drug to counteract the side effects from the current drug in order yeah. to get you past it. Um, which you know, so I, I've been battling the idea of getting this vaccine. You know, I've been suggested by the doctors not to get it because of my heart and. Uh, blood clotting issue um but it's so politicized um so i'm supposed to be speaking in in the virgin islands and i found out yesterday that it is a fully vaccinated event only a conference is it, they're requiring fully vaccination and, and vaccination cards um so they've taken away the 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 idea of having free will and now the government's starting to impose this whole vaccination thing on people and i, I just don't you, think that's right you would you would hate you would hate europe at the moment it not not only is it basically being mandated you have to have what they call the qr code so you can't go to a restaurant unless you have a qr code so they scan your code and all of your information is behind that just so you can get a you can get a piece of uh, you can get a meal there yeah i, I mean i don't, I don't want to sound conspiracy theorist but you know in the bible they do talk about the mark of the beast and how you can't uh, barter or or trade if you don't have that mark and i i mean you look at what's going on right now I, I wouldn't call it you know the end of the world but damn we're losing a lot of civil liberties and freedom over the whole pandemic and i, I have mixed feelings for that you know on, on one hand i i agree with you but on, on the other hand there's so many people that just don't get it you, you don't wear masks for yourself to protect yourself. You don't vaccinate for yourself. You do it so you protect the community, right? So, so you can protect people like you that cannot get the vaccine. Right. You cannot do it for themselves. And, uh, and that's what a lot of people don't get. And that's why you got all these conspiracies and it's why you got all this hatred uh, towards all of this. Yeah. And I, I think in Europe right now, too, um, the football players uh, that are mandated to be vaccinated, there's been several of them who have just dropped on the field. 
um, after vaccination. I don't know if it has anything to do with the vaccination, but they're calling for an inquiry over um, what's causing this, this uh, you know, these normal healthy people to be dropping everywhere. Um, but I think that the, the big impact that the whole pandemic had on me, I was waiting in line at Tesco during lockdown in London. And when I walked up to the store, I had to get in this huge line. Only a couple of people were allowed in at a time. And I walked up and this guy comes out of Tesco and drops. Next thing I know, they have two or three ambulances and these guys are in hazmat suits and they're working on this guy for a good 20 minutes. So I'm in line waiting to get in. By the time I got up to the door, they were no longer working on this guy and they were calling for someone to come pick up the body. Um, and that was my first interaction, my first like physical sight of the effect of the pandemic. Um, and I know a lot of people say, well, it's not real. You know, you know, it's all bullshit. It's, you know, government conspiracy, but I've had it twice and I can tell you it's not fun. Um, sure. But I think that, you know, along with the pandemic and how bad it is, it's also an opportunity, I think. Um, I guess uh, Chip Harris was talking about um, folding the, the folding at home uh, computer, computer, uh, distribu distributed computing uh, model that they have trying to find uh, cures for, for certain diseases. And they use the whole, I don't know if you remember SETI at home, right? That, that distributed computing, but they're using that same model to figure out mutations of the virus as well, which I think hmm. is epic. Um, I think we need to have more of those types of uh, projects in, in cybersecurity too. That's, uh, that's much more interesting than uh, uh, the thing they tried. I think it was Europe, but it might have done it here as well, where they had like the proximity uh, software. So, <laughs> so it ba basically, yeah, right. Was it uh, was it uh, close close field close mm -hmm. uh, close uh, uh, loop BTE. interaction? BTE. Yeah, right. Yeah, so so they could track everybody with your cell phone because because they all communicated to each other. So they knew if you if somebody had the virus in a certain area that through that software they knew everybody who was who had cut uh, gotten near to that person and they could inform them to stay at home so so i made a good friend with with nhs and he was head of uh one of the trust um, cybersecurity of the nhs <clears throat> and when they came out with the application in london um they were using bte you know the bluetooth light and this application and it all interfaced with NHS. And everybody was, you know, kind of hesitant. They didn't know what to think about it. And I just, I went out there and just posted all over the place. I was like, this is bullshit. You know, Bluetooth is so vulnerable. Um, so I'm gonna get in your phone and find out you know, all this information. Uh, and if I can break the app, I can go back to NHS and get even more information. So this is a, this is a horrible fucking idea. And what happens if I poison that whole network? And next thing you know, you're pulling up your app and everybody around you has COVID, um, but they really don't. You know, it could cause mass panic. I know. So they, they were talking about, one guy argued with me. He said, well, Bluetooth is secure. And I was like, dude, Bluetooth has been insecure for 30 years. You know, the, the, the stack has not <laughs> changed. But I mean, that, that's the type of thing that happens. Like people panic and they want to find the best way to help people, but they don't always think it through. And I, I can tell anybody out there who's developing an app, a health app, and you're including Bluetooth, whether it be my pacemaker or, or another implanted device, don't use Bluetooth. Kill that shit. Yep. There's, so. there's more of those. I, I actually trying to find some time to work on uh, 
uh, wireless uh, serial communications in uh, automation devices. So it, it used to be you had to plug on a USB or way back in the day, a serial cable. You go in and, and you and you configure your device and you look at statistics for it, but they've been implementing, uh, I'm terrible with names, but it's, it's basically wireless serial. You walk up to it and you have a scanner. Uh, I think it's RFID, maybe even the, the same technology, but you walk up to it and you communicate with the device, you get all the statistics for it. I'm, I'm, I see big potential of, of doing stuff through that protocol in, in big automation plants as well. So I'm hoping to get some time here uh, uh, early next year or somewhere next year to start uh, researching that. So, so last question before we, uh, before we go, if you had one thing in cybersecurity that you could change that, that you think would make an epic difference in the way we do things in the security of the internet, what would it be? One thing that would make the biggest impact, probably taking the human factor out of the automation platform, automation environment. So no direct interaction, right? Be it, be it like a, an AI uh, it, uh, presence doing, doing the job for it, pushing the buttons, or just having people sit away from the process so they don't, they don't hook up uh, infected laptops, USBs directly into the industrial environment. I think, I think from an industrial cybersecurity perspective, that will make things a lot better. Because even people that are sitting behind their computer and they get an email Right, and and it's it's ransomware. Their computer, maybe the whole network they're on, is getting infected. But if, if we separate them from the industrial network, we can still continue our our, our uh, production. I totally agree. Totally agree. I think the one thing that I would change would be the way that that companies interact with each other as far as security goes and breaches. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot to be learned on failures. People are so afraid to admit failure. And so afraid to be known for a failure, um, but there's so many things you can learn from from falling on your face. I, I don't think I would be where I'm at today had I not failed the times that I failed. Um, and I think people need to embrace that more. I think they need to embrace their failures and learn from them, other than you know, shoving under the carpet. And you know, when I came back to the U.S., one of the things that they started was that whole cancel culture bullshit, where they're tearing things down. Yes, they have a negative connotation. But if you tear everything down and bury it like it never existed, we're bound to make the same fucking mistakes again. Um, so as bad as, as some of the things were in history, it's still part of history and we still need to learn from it. And the same with cybersecurity. The epic failures that people have had in cybersecurity, we need to learn from them. There should be, there should be a book of failures and compromises, epic failures and compromises throughout the industry and throughout cybersecurity history. That way we can get that book and learn from it. You know, it should be a teaching module. So. Everybody, yeah, everybody should go to those exercises. Hey, this is this is what happened when the Melissa virus came out, and you yes. you get a training. Hey, click on this email, and all of a sudden that pops up, and this goes in there, and everybody uh, everything fails and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Absolutely. Well, Pascal, I really appreciate you uh, being on the podcast. I look forward to it, and it's been a great conversation. My and, pleasure. Uh, we definitely need to uh, do this again soon. Have an episode two. Maybe we can uh, bring uh, Clint on as well and, and just oh, yeah. have a, a group discussion. I think it'd be good. Um, anyways, be really good. Yeah. Have a good weekend. And whenever you're in Chattanooga, look me up and, and we'll, uh, we'll spend some time. How's that sound? All right, man.
Take right. care. Cheers. Bye, everybody.